Well, praise the Lord. But it's three hours away, right? Well, you'll have to come visit us sometime. I know. You will. That's right. That's exactly right. Yes, ma'am. Good, 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 good. We are so thankful that the Lord has answered your prayers. That's awesome. Who else this morning? Yes, Jane. Absolutely. Yeah, right. That's good. That's good. Who else? Yes, we got back here and then you. You know what? That's not the devil. That's not the devil in your computer. It sounds like the Holy Spirit's working. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just teasing you, Tamara. You know, I just tease. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, good. Thank you. We thank God for that. Mm-hmm. That's good. Thank, thankful for that. Yes? Oh, really? From the storm that blew in this morning? Well, I was up. I was. I went to bed, though, at 8 o'clock last night, just full disclosure. So, yeah. It was a rough weekend. We were gone. It was, it's been a long week, yeah. Yeah, I've been, I feel like I've just been preached out, man. So, But we're going to get started this morning. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. We thank you, God, for all of your blessings, Lord. I just pray, Father, right now that your Holy Spirit would just settle in this room, Lord, that you would open our ears, open our eyes, Lord God. We just ask you to bring revelation knowledge, Lord. We don't want to do anything without you, Lord. We just ask for your guidance, your wisdom, Lord God. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord God. And Lord, give us the desire to obey fully in every area of our life. And we thank you today. We ask that every need that was mentioned, that you would minister, that you would meet, that you would provide. Lord, we give you praise for all the answered prayers that we have seen. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Now, uh, if y'all, some of y'all were here, I tried to read my poem I wrote and I had to read where I've got it. See, I had to wait on my computer because I had it just written in not poetry form, which messes with your, well, it messes with your rhythm. If it's not laid out like a poet, like poetry should be. So here goes. Y'all ready? Now listen. Y'all ready? Okay. Gather round all God's, well, the title is The Cry. The Cry. Gather round all God's children. I'll tell you a tale of when heaven wept and humanity fell. God's imager was marred, sin had begun, its dangerous path right into the sun. Years and miles and miles and years, fear took root, being watered with tears. Humanity raved, contorted and foam, finding no help, ripped clear through the bone. A covenant came to rejoin the bond, lessons from heaven as father to son. The breach was severe, the wound would not mend until the father, his son, would send. He walked among his broken flock. They were tormented, diseased, missing, and mocked. He bound their wounds and gave back their sight, preached the kingdom, and took on the fight. The war on the cross was his to win. As sickness, disease, separation, and sin was laid on his body, all bludgeoned and bruised, he inhaled his last, and with that breath he used his voice to proclaim the job was done. Since power now taken, death was overcome. Raised from the grave, he, we were raised from the grave. I was raised there too, ascended to heaven and seated with you. The battle of life he has already won. We are more than conquerors. We are one with the Son. Full rights of inheritance are ours to use while rescuing the broken, the distressed, and abused. We now live on this earth to turn the tide as the life-giving flow taken from his side. A bride we are equals given his name. Command, rebuke, exhort the kingdom to proclaim. 
Drive out demons, raise the dead. Release his, his authority, stand in his stead. Raise the banner, shine his light. Carry his torch to every corner of the night. For one day soon we will shine like the sun, radiant in splendor when every battle is done. Until that day, raise a cry for the fight. Plunder hell, rescue souls, advance the kingdom through his might. There y'all go. <laughs> I wrote it, every word of it. I'm a poet. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, I just say today, we have a job to do. And it's not a job that's like any other job. Because when you have a job to do that you've already been provided the resources in full to do it. Like if you are told to go, you're, a, you're told to go and build a house and all the materials and all the, all the money and all the, even the energy you will need for the labor has been provided. Who doesn't desire to get started on that? When it says that we're more than conquerors, that's what we are. We are more than conquerors. Because he has won the battle, we just have to go enforce the win. I mean, how many battles would you shrink away from? And see, when I get these rhyming schemes in my mind, I find myself still doing it. I have to, I will sit up here and rhyme until I finish. No, no, it's too creepy. It's too creepy. <laughs> see, see, I'm already in that. I do that. I get in that cadence and I have to like, come on, Andrea, get the rhyme out for just a second. So we are more than, con see, I'm still, still there. We're going to have to like sing a song or something to get this tune out of my head. No, it does to me because I feel like a freak. Yeah, but we are. We, oh, I know I am a freak. We are more than conquerors. And what that means is that he has completely won everything. And he's handed us the victory. It's like a prize fighter who he trains and he goes through the entire, he goes 15 rounds in the ring and he comes out victorious and he goes home and his five foot one, 85 pound wife meets him at the door and he hands her the check. She is more than a conqueror. That's what we are. As the bride of Christ. See, we have so much concept in our mind that we have to fight for Jesus. He's already won. The Bible says in Corinthians that we have this treasure in jars of clay. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. I've come to understand as I look at that and I thought about treasure and I thought about a jar of clay. No one puts treasure in a clay jar. Why? It's not protected. What? Where do you put your treasure at? Maybe a safety deposit box. Maybe a vault. That's the vault at the bank. Under a lock and key. I mean, if you have, if you have say, cash. I had my, my stepfather, he, he did not believe in investing money. Not even putting it in the bank, really, not much. And so every bit of money he would get, and he had an oil lease where you own the minerals to a land, and then every so many years you would re-lease the land to an oil field company that would wanted to hold the lease in case they ever wanted to drill on your land. And so they may not ever drill, but he might every five to six years, depending upon the terms of the lease, get $80,000 just for the, lease, the, the rights to the minerals. And so he would take that money, oftentimes, and he would vacuum pack it in $10,000, $5,000 increments. And he would go and he would put it, he would take those vacuum packs to the bank, and he'd put them in his safety deposit box. And he always had cash. I mean, that's, you know, you're like, well, you're supposed to deposit it in a, an account. He, so... Well, there's no charges for people who put $80,000 in a bank. <laughs> and so, but he didn't earn. So many of you are like, well, that was foolish. What was he, what was he not getting? 
Right. You know, he could have invested and got interest, but he didn't see it that way. He wanted cash. Old school. But anyway, he didn't take his money and throw it on the dash of his car. Right? He didn't take his money and put it in uh, the flower pot, the clay jar in, in the living room. Right. He put it somewhere that it was safe. And that's what treasure, we take treasure and we put it into something that we feel is secure. Is that true? But see, the irony in that scripture in Corinthians is that God, where Paul is talking, it says that we have this treasure and it's in jars of clay. And so we're supposed to go, who does that? Who does that? That the excellency of the power, so now we've got treasure, and what else do we have? Power may be of God, so to his glory, and not of ours. So, and it goes on to say there that we are pressed, but not crushed. Persecuted, not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. So now, we're coming into another clarity about the treasure. The treasure has power. We are weak and frail because we're compared to clay. But when the treasure is deposited in us, in the jar of clay as it were, we are pressed down but not destroyed. Remind, I'm reminding you, you're clay. We are pressed, hang on, I'm not, I'm not even there. We are pressed down but not destroyed. We are persecuted but not abandoned. What's, how, 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 how could possibly a jar of clay Got my, don't make me break it. I know. How could possibly a fragile clay pot withstand persecution? How could it be struck down but not destroyed? Somebody tell me. Because we have a weird dynamic going on. See, this is not an earthly dynamic. An earthly dynamic, we put treasure in more secure things. But in the kingdom dynamic, he puts treasure in the weakness and the treasure protects the weakness. I remind you, we're more than conquerors. Now, for you who think that you're protecting the treasure, you will live a long, miserable life. You will. You will, because you will constantly be like, working, I've got this treasure. Why the heck did he put it in this jar of clay? Did he even know, oh, no, the devil's coming to get me. He's coming to get me. He's coming to get me. I've got to protect the treasure. No, devil, you can't have the treasure. As if. I don't know if y'all know this, but the demonic realm has the upper ground. Now, what do I mean by that? Wait a second. You just said, you just said Andrea, we're, we're, we're conquerors. You said that. What, what the heck? They have the upper ground. You know why they have the upper ground? Let me tell you a story. There was a man who was, this will illustrate it. There was a man who was casting a demon out. True story. And as he was casting out this demon, this person was so tormented and demon-possessed. He was in a foreign country. The man who he was casting the demon out did not speak English. No English. I don't think it was Spanish, but it was another country. I think it was from India. He was casting out this demon. This demon was manifesting, and the demon started talking to the man in English. So he's talking to the man, and the the man is casting out the demon... And he tells him that he has to go. And he said, I won't go. If you make me go, I will kill him. I will throw him in front of traffic. That's what he said. And the man, he keeps telling him he has to leave. The demon-possessed man takes off running and screaming for the door. As soon as he gets to the door, he can't go out the door. He like bounces off of something and falls down and comes back. 
And the man still, I told you, you have to go. And the demon-possessed man gets up, and the voice of the demon speaks through him in English and says, you can't see them. And the preacher said, no, I can't. But I know they're there, and you have to go. And the man was freed of the demon. Now, when I say that the spiritual realm, the demonic realm, has the upper ground, it's based on the fact that you can't see them. And so what we say there is that we, as humanity, we are tied in to our five senses. And we see what we see, we smell what we smell, we hear what we hear, we know what we know. And it's all based in this seen realm, right? I think I'm talking to a bunch of humans who understand this concept. Now, when we start to move into the realm of the unseen, the spirit realm, there are people who have, who the, the veil is peeled back a little bit and they may see. That's not how most people operate. It's not how I operate, and I'm glad of it, to tell you the truth. I, how many of y'all? It kind of, it's, you know, I just don't want to be freaked out. All the time. And so most people who see in the spirit do so when they're sleeping. You know, because it's just it would just be troubling. There are people who have who move in the realm, who move in the realm of the occult. And so they are deceived, but there's still a realm there. And they do seek out spiritual power. And that's the reality. So we have, so there is a knowledge realm that's not a realm that we have a clear sight into. Would you all agree with that? And it's based on that alone that I say that the demonic realm has the upper ground. But when we put our confidence in the Lord and we know that he has defeated in every realm. Now I'm going to prove that to you scripturally. Philippians 2. To him a name was given which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess of things in the earth. That's us. Of things under the earth. What's the rest of it? In the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue. No, I just didn't. And things of heaven. This is what happens when I start trying to quote and I haven't had adequate sleep. I actually have to put my glasses on and read the scripture. Philippians 2. Mike, you're supposed to help me. Yes, yes. <laughs> to him. Okay. No, just go back to sleep, Daddy. Okay. To who now, through who existing in the form of God did not consider himself equal to God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, becoming in the likeness of man. He being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For, the reason, for this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth. And every tongue could, should confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of the Father. In heaven, in the heavenlies, in the earth, and under the earth. In the realm of the dead. In the realm of the dead, in the realm of the spirit, and in the realm of the earth. Now, in the, the third heaven, where the throne of God is at, now he sits on the throne of God. So he is exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. And so every realm of authority he has conquered, and every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess. And so when you operate in Jesus' name, you operate in his authority. Now, when we operate in his authority, we operate in submission to his authority. Many people love to go around claiming spiritual authority, and they don't walk under authority. They are deceived. They just are. Because a cop, a police officer who has authority, we know he has authority because what has the state issued him? A badge, a gun, 
a ticket book, a club. They, I mean, you've got handcuffs. Come on. How many of y'all have ever encountered the authority of a police officer? Now, don't lie. I got the pastor back there has, you know. We've got people who've, who've encountered the authority of a police. Now, Clint used to be a police officer. But, right? Did you, you did, were you, you walked in an authority, right? What you're given. But if you had on your outfit, your outfit, <laughs> Your little outfit. <laughs> you had on your uniform. There we go. And you were to walk in a bank and pull your gun and stick it to the teller's head and say, give me all your money. You have just stepped out from under your authority. Authority. Now, is the state going to back him in that use of that authority? No way, no how. They're going to decommission him, take his little outfit from him. And he's going to get a new one. It's going to, have, it's going to be orange or black and white stripes. But he's getting a whole nother because he didn't come under authority. You see, that's how it works for us. We have to come under the authority, under the authority of Christ. And he says things like, if you love me, you will do what? You'll keep my commandments. And so it's assumed that your love is going to inspire you to devotion. But devotion will never inspire you to love. It just doesn't. Duty driven and trying to walk into that just by sheer duty. It's the love that becomes the impetus for the devotion. I mean, I am legally married to my husband. We have a marriage license. I have not looked at my marriage license since the day I got married. I haven't. Why would I? I don't need that to remind me that I'm married. That's just a formality. My devotion is what is over that license. My love is over the license. It's not because of some technical approach that we have in a covenant. And that's not how we come to God. You see, this is not a legal book. Now, I know... In, in Christendom, in Western Christianity, we have approached God through a legal lens. Now, the reason what I mean by that is that we call God a judge, and when I say judge, instantly the picture in your head goes to what? A man in a black robe. You might have picked a woman, but you probably didn't. <laughs> and you put a, a black robe on him, and you had a gavel, and he's sitting up on the bench, right? of you. You know why? Because you live in that culture. The Bible did not have that. That didn't exist until, I don't know, years and years and years after most of this text was written. But there's a book in the Bible called Judges. That's our lens for what a judge is in the Bible. It's also the word judge is also used interchangeably with another word. What is it? Deliverer. One who delivers his covenant people from their enemies. Because they messed up. And because of their mess up, they through their own choices, when they did what they did, they got what they got. And then because they were getting what they were getting, because they had done what they had done, the pain of what they were getting caused them to cry out to God for mercy. And God, who is merciful beyond our comprehension, every amount of mercy that you have ever assigned to God is not nearly enough. Because Lamentations 2 and 10 says that His mercies are in fact new every morning. So we see that God over and over again, when Israel did what they did and they got what they got, and they were living under the penalty of their own choices because they were conferring with demon gods and enemies and they were being disobedient for their own lust and their own desires. And as long as it was serving them, as long as it felt good, it was good. But how many of you know that sin is pleasurable only for a season? And then when the season wears off, the hooks are already in. And the thing which you thought you controlled now controls you. Yeah. 
And then that goes on to the point that the oppression of that calls them under the sigh to call out to God for a deliver, a judge. Send us a judge. Their choices, the penalty for their choices was judging them. What do I mean by that? When they chose their sin, they chose their judgment. And that began to raise up and judge them. In the form of maybe, here we go, Gideon, a very familiar one. The Midianites. They didn't clear them out, right? Compromise. But it's fun to compromise when the thing you're compromising you're still in control of. But things don't just stay where you put them. They grow. In the Midianites rose up a swarm, a horde of people without number. And Israel could not even harvest their own crops because there was so much inflation in the land that gas prices had shot to $5 a gallon and the Fed had raised the interest rate so much that no one could afford to buy homes and home prices were so inflated that you would love to sell your house, but you would never be able to buy another one. Oh, wait, I got confused with our narrative, not theirs. Same, same. See, and so we have, and the, the, the burden of that, of those choices begin to, what? Weigh on them began to oppress them. And so now Israel, who are the covenant people of God, because they have willingly not obeyed God and not obeying God, they have welcomed the distress from the enemy. And the distress from the enemy has grown to the point that they now have decided that obedience to God is better than fun with the enemy. So they call out to a God who is merciful beyond comprehension. And God, the judge that he is, raises up a judge that looks like him. A delivering judge. And he comes in as Gideon is threshing wheat in the wine press. Not the best place to thresh wheat. Wheat should be threshed on a hill in the open where the breeze can catch the chaff and blow it away so that the grain that is edible is returned to you for your use. He is in a wine press, a vat, tall cylinder with cement or rock walls, a silo with only an opening at the top, no wind. How many of you have ever done a job for the Lord because of a bunch of choices you have made and you're trying to work for the Lord when you did what you did and you got what you got and you're still just trying to mix and mingle your compromise with what you think is obedience because you have misconstrued what grace is and you're walking in sin and God's not happy with it so he stepped aside and he's allowed the enemy to do what the enemy does when you rejected him and the grace that you think is allowing you to live however you want is actually the grace that steps back and lets the enemy come in so that you can feel what you need to feel when you choose chose what you chose yeah <laughs> just saying <laughs> yeah and so we get the divine setup I just said a whole lot right there I hope y'all know you, yeah 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 and so as as Gideon is in the wine press trying to hide his harvest from the enemy He's got to produce his own wind. I'm just going to go there. Well, it's probably not what you think. It's funny what he said, but, you know, it, it might be kind of symbolic. But, see, we have in our churches, we're trying to, we're trying to thresh. And what is threshing? It's taking the grain, the harvest. Who's the harvest? That'd be you taking the grain and trying to remove the worthless part. What would the worthless part be? Well, I heard it. 
the works of the flesh. Just your old operating system and the way you deflesh, just the flesh. It's not your body flesh, but it's the, it's the operating system that Satan has used for years to destroy you, the flesh. It's that, it's that you know, rotten, stinking, no good part of just your old lifestyle that still the remnants and relics of it are still hanging around, and you are so comfortable and familiar with it, you can get right on that path anytime you need to. Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. So here he is. Here's Gideon, and he's having to, as we're in churches, and we have to, that's what we're doing. We're threshing because when we did what we did, we got what we got, and now the enemy has so invaded around us, instead of being on the hill threshing our wheat where the wind is doing the job of drying, of driving off the chaff easily, lickety-splickety, you know what I mean? Doing what the wind does, and it's, it's all the great operating system. Instead, we've built silos a performance where we built our own wind systems called religion and our programs and we can run our two services and we can get you in and out like cattle and we can entertain you and we don't need the glory of God. We have a fog machine and we don't need, I'm not saying I have anything against that, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying that sometimes we need to look at our operating systems and ask ourselves the question, are we just in the wine press trying to thresh, trying to do something in one realm that we should be doing in another easily, but we're doing in this realm quite difficultly because the wind's not blowing and another word for the wind in the old testament is the ruach it just means the spirit we would find it quite easy to thresh the flesh out of our life if the wind of god was blowing go ahead mike did i not do it right okay It's in the wrong environment. Mm -hmm. I agree. So we're going to get out of the wine press of our performance trying to make our own win. But you know when it was? You know when he finally got to the place where he was ready to come out? He did. He finally said, Where are all the miracles of our fathers? If, if you're so good, God, and you've done all this stuff for generations in the past, if Catherine Kuhlman had a healing ministry and John G. Lake had a healing ministry and Smith Wigglesworth had a healing ministry and we've got those who have bygone days have seen the dead raised and blind eyes open, I want to know, God, where are all the miracles of the past? And the Lord shows up in the form of an angel. He sends an angel and says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. Finally, somebody who got sick and tired enough to ask the question. I just left you there long enough producing your own wind till you got so tired and so disgusted with yourself and your effort and your self-effort that you actually compared what you should be having with what you have and you turned to me and he said, I will deliver you as one man. So he said, he sent a deliverer, a judge. And God judged the enemy. And we say, well, God, he sort of judged Gideon too, though, didn't he? You see how that worked? He judged the enemy and destroyed the enemy. He judged Gideon and saved him. See, we have to be able to look at what we're talking about. There were no gavels involved. There's no black robe. There was a deliverer. And so as we look at this, we have to understand that the Word of God is laid out for us so that we no longer look at it as a legal document, sort of like going to the DMV and getting your paperwork in order. You know what? You never get your paperwork in order at the DMV. I just thank God that Greensboro's DMV closed. I nearly lost. They opened back up? I think they had to go through a purging first. I went in there. I hope. I hope none of y'all worked at DMV. 
I, you know, anybody working at the DMV, they're not going to answer now. I've already messed that up. Anyway, Greenville's DMV was a, I nearly lost my salvation there, just, just being honest. <laughs> Trying to get Jacob's driver's license. I waited in line for an hour and a half, nearly two hours, only to make my way up to the desk to find out I did not have the one little piece of paperwork that I needed to get the job done and then I approached the bench too far and the woman told me to back up that I could not I'm telling you by this time I wanted to leap over the desk you know what I'm talking about Yeah, my flesh. I was, I don't know. But I went back. I went back. I went back, y'all. The story ends well. I went back, and I sat in line for another, with me and Jacob, for another three hours. I had the right paperwork. You know what I did this time? Me and Jacob brought a deck of playing cards. We did. And we played cards in there, and we had fun while waiting in the DMV. And we laughed, and we played all kinds of different card games. And you know what was funny about that? The time passed so quickly. And by the time we got up there, Jacob's smile on his face was a real one and not one like this. (laughs) But what was funny about the whole thing is we didn't know we had an audience. Somebody later found somebody who goes to our church who knew who we were, and they said, man, your pastor's wife and their son was in the DMV, and it blessed me so much. They were in there playing games, and everybody else was on their phones ignoring each other. Isn't that funny? You know, that's just a little sideline, you know, but they didn't know what I'd just experienced before. That was a choice. So as we look at, as we look at the Word of God, it's not a, it's not a, if we look through this legal lens, what we miss is the covenant language. See, this is a covenant. This is not a contract. It's not a contract. And if you move into it as a contract, you might, you might work some of its principles to a certain extent. But what's going to happen whenever things don't go your way according to the contractual obligations as you see them? I see this happen all the time, guys. You're going to file suit and you're going to be mad at God and you're going to think he's failed you and not kept his covenants see it matters so much how we see the lens we see God through see this is not a contractual thing where do we get the western idea because the word judge is in there then we just wrap the whole nature of judge around our ideal of what a judge is instead of what the biblical idea of what a judge is now it came through christendom way before we got here by a man by the name of um, john calvin john calvin was an attorney and he was a preacher So he easily took a Western uh, lens of a courtroom and he adapted that and he brought in God as the judge and Jesus as the defending attorney and the Holy Spirit and all these things. And he accomplished that quite well and he framed in preachers. It hit pulpits across the world, across America for sure. And it was preached that way. But it was preached that way and then what happened was in order to reinforce that, then we derived a whole work system where we checked our contract to make sure we were doing A, B, C, and 1, 2, 3 in the order that they should be performed so God couldn't shirk his contractual obligations to bless us and make us the head and not the tail, to make us the first and not the last, above and not only and not beneath so that we could be blessed in the field and blessed in the home and blessed in the basket. We turned that into a contractual thing. It was never meant to be contractual. See, our heart was wrong and we're looking at God through that lens. This is a covenant. This is tantamount to a marriage license. A covenant. Read Hosea if you want to know the nature of God with regard to his people. God told Hosea to marry a prostitute. Now that'll mess with your theology. Right there, we've already got a problem with, well, the Lord would never tell you to do something that, you see? You see? 
Well, here in this, it's, it's for a greater purpose of understanding. See, our little, our little neat and tidy little lines of communication and thought processes that we've been taught many times from our Sunday school rooms forward. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but at some time we've got to step back and say, we've got to question where we're threshing our wheat. And so what we do is that we look at it through that lens of legalism and not through this covenant lens of love. See, when God says over and over again, I am a jealous God, what's that the language of a judge? How many judges have you ever appeared before and they are like, I'm sending you to the dungeon because I'm jealous. You say, well, maybe they're jealous for the law. Ah, what, but who, what, what language is that to say that I'm jealous? Husband and wife. How many men in here, if your wife was running off with some other guy, might get jealous? But with a godly, but add godly jealousy to it. His jealousy, see, your jealousy might spill out in wrath toward your wife, toward the person who she's committing adultery with, and you might wind up in jail because of some version of that. We've seen that show, right? It's replayed over and over again throughout humanity. But what we see here is that when God says he's jealous, he's jealous with a perfect jealousy. He's jealous with a jealousy that never contradicts his character. Does that make sense? He's jealous with a jealousy that never contradicts his, his loyalty and his character and his compassion. And his. So when, when Hosea is told to marry a prostitute, this is all a portrayal of what God's covenant people are to him. And the prostitute, Gomer, continues to go back and to go into her life of sin. Gomer in the story is Israel. Hosea is God. And he keeps going after her even though she's a prostitute. And he loves her. And he loves her. And his jealousy, because of his jealousy, he feels deep pain in his heart because his bride, his Gomer, will not love him when he's provided everything for her. But he doesn't. He, you hear the language of bitterness of, of heart, of pain. <clears throat> Because the love is spurned and she returns to idols. She returns to prostitution. And he keeps going after her and going after her. You see, this is not a book about contracts. This is a covenant between a God and a people whom he loves. And he will go after you and use any tool necessary to win you. It is the kindness of God that brings man to repentance. It is not the repentance of man that brings God to kindness. That's what legal orientation has taught us. See, that's, <laughs> that's what, we, what, we, what we do. What if we remove the legal aspect entirely and we used our new identification not as authority but bridal identification? See, what we find, and I don't have time to, I don't think I have it in this Bible. I probably do. I've shared it in here before. But see, sometimes I share things and I know it's just like not dropping. It's when I have to add more stuff to it. Then, See, there's a, <clears throat> there's a scripture in Deuteronomy that says if a person is going to war, they have certain excuses that can get them out of war. Marriage to a wife is one. What's some more? No, it's not in there. I don't think it is. I think it's if you bought some property... See, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I can turn there. Yeah, it's not, I don't think it's only born son because they had kinsman redeemer for that. If a son died and they were the last one in their line, there would be a near kinsman who would go to the wife and raise up seed in the name of the father. 
different. I'm telling you, it's a different. So you're using you're using Western. That's all you're using, because and that's that's what we we. And so, um, okay, when you go out to a battle against your, y'all ready for this? Deuteronomy 20. When you go out to a battle against your enemies and you see horse and chariot and a people and you're afraid, for Adonai your God, the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt, when you draw back, okay, yeah, this is it. The officers, hero Israel, you are drawing near today for battle against your enemies. Don't be faint-hearted. Don't fear or panic or tremble because of them. For Adonai, your God, is the one who goes before you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. The officers who are to speak to the troops saying, What man has built a new house but has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house. Otherwise, he might die in the battle and another man would, de- would dedicate it. What man has planted a vineyard and has not put it to use? Let him go back to the house, otherwise he might die in the battle and other, another man would begin to use it. What man has become engaged to a woman but has not yet married her? Let him go back to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would marry her. The officers will speak further to the troops and say, What man is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house so he does not weaken his brothers. See how the Word of God looks different than our Western ideology? Now see, now if we go to Matthew 11, Jesus who is coming in, he's bringing in, he's inaugurating a whole new reality, a new day, right? You all agree with that? What did I just say I was going to look at? Thank you. See, y'all are so good. That he's, he's inaugurating, I'm going to finish this real quick, a whole new day. And in this new day, he is, he, Jesus, you have to realize, Jesus is standing between two errors, eras, E-R-A's. He's standing between, is that how you spell error? Good. He's standing between the old covenant under Moses, and he's moving into a new era after the cross. But he's standing between the two. He's in this weird ground. He's living under the law. He's, he's living under the law. But he's fixing, but he himself is the end of the law. The reason the law came was to bring us to him. So all the law is terminating, ending in him because he is the fulfillment of the law. And he is ushering in a brand new day. And so that's why you have all of this iconoclastic language between him and the Pharisees. And he's doing things so different and people are getting so disturbed and uptight. And so he comes in and he's constantly telling stories and parables, reaching into the law and bringing them into a new day. He's teaching, he's reaching into the law and bringing them into a new day. And that one I just read you is right here. It says this. Find it, find it, find it. I don't know. You're as good as me. Uh, See, this is what happens when I go off script and I haven't done this. I got to go back to my... Deuteronomy reference, Matthew 11 and 12 is what I have there. Let's see. From the days of John the Baptist until now. No, that's not it. It's the one about the banquet. I should have had this in here. If y'all could see my Bible, you would know. I'll just have to tell it to you until I can find it. When he throws a banquet, the man who throws a banquet, what do they all begin to do? Ah, good job, girl. And what do they say? It's a parable. It's a parable. And what do they say? I can't, I will come follow you. I've got to go, I've got to go find a, I've got to, I've just married a woman and I hadn't, you know, done the marriage thing yet. I, one other man said, I heard a preacher um, preach one time, two fools and a henpecked husband. <laughs> I did. Because he said, he said, because one guy, he married a wife and hadn't, you know, wifed her yet. And so another man, he had, he bought some property and hadn't actually done anything with it yet. And another man, he had some oxen and he hadn't proved them yet. So it's a farm. It's property, a house, and his wife. That's a direct reference to what I just read in the law, right? Do y'all see that? And so what happens, what we're supposed to realize is, is that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. But Jesus is ushering in another day, not of violence. I know we use that scripture that way, but I feel like we misquote it all the time. I'm sorry, the context is not right. So we say, we're still in violence and violence and violence. Jesus is saying from the days until John the Baptist until now. The now is him. 
the kingdom of God has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. So in the Old Covenant, how many of you have ever noticed there's a lot of warfare and bloodshed? Kind of disturbing, right? So he's setting up his kingdom, and he's operating. There's a new day coming. And so he's got all these laws, and he tells this story that directly correlates to the law in Deuteronomy 20. And any person who knew the law knew what he was talking about. We miss it because we don't even understand how to read this stuff. But what he says there as we close is this. He is saying, you are making excuses like you're going to a battle. But what have I just invited you to? A banquet. Who makes excuses when they're invited to a banquet? Nobody unless their mind is distorted and they can't see the banquet. You see, Jesus is telling them, guys... I'm the banquet. I'm the banquet. And he says cool stuff like, All you who labor and are heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly and I will give you rest in your hearts. We're still acting like the kingdom of God is going to be won because we're battling like we did in the Old Testament. Now we battle differently. We battle like Esther battled. Well, how did she battle? With her beauty and with her covenant placement, she walked into a banquet and she defeated every plot of the enemy just with her presence and her relationship to the king. She didn't yield a sword. She didn't do anything. And she totally delivered the whole nation of Israel with her beauty and with her relationship to the man in power. Our victory is not based on some legal orientation. It's based on our relationship as the bride of Christ. And when I walk into the banquet room with him, and there's a plot. I don't leverage it based on some legal dictates. I leverage it based on my beauty. For she will be a glorious, beautiful bride without spot or wrinkle. See, it's a relationship of the heart, not a relationship of the contract. You can continue approaching God, trying to get your paperwork in order, and holding him to his contractual obligations. But you've missed it by a mile. You're producing your own wind. If you just get out where the wind's blowing, what you're seeking in effort, you will find in ease. We're dismissed. for a long time. I did the other for a long time. And I don't do it anymore. Because it doesn't work.